Hello again and welcome to this, the first episode in a new season of Eat This Podcast. It's really good to be back here podcasting and I've got loads of interesting topics lined up for the next few episodes, starting with an in-depth look at the world's most popular spice in a country that's truly taken it to heart. The vast majority of Chinese really think of it as a domestic product and it's fully, fully integrated into Chinese cuisine. Obviously, there's huge differences in the use of it regionally, but pretty much everybody, you know, they don't really think of it as foreign. I mean, certainly more and more people are aware that it was introduced, but it's definitely treated as an everyday spice by many, many people in China. That spice, I'm sure you've guessed, is the chili pepper. And my guest today is the author of a new book, The Chili Pepper in China, subtitled A Cultural Biography. So my name is Brian Dot, and I'm an expert in Chinese history. Uh, I'm a professor in the history department at Whitman College, which is in eastern Washington state in the U.S. The sort of goal for my researching and then writing this project was to explain how the Chinese started eating the chili pepper. So started eating something that with a very, very strong and distinct flavor. Were you into chilies before you decided to investigate chilies in China? I was, but I wouldn't call myself a chili head. So I have no desire to eat, you know, the reapers or the ghost peppers or something like that. I definitely enjoyed them. I've definitely developed a even stronger taste for them after, you know, while I was doing the research. Sichuan cooking is chili peppers. I mean, it's just to me, an outsider, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sichuan is chilies. And is right. that and that's true for the Chinese as well. It is. I mean, obviously, if you're from Sichuan, <laughs> they had a lot more subtlety to it. And, and of course, they have plenty of dishes that don't have chilies in them. But if you're a tourist or you're at a Sichuan restaurant somewhere outside of Sichuan, your expectation is that the dishes will all have chilies in them. And, and, and obviously, that gets done. That catering happens for sure. You know, there's rivalries between Hunan and Sichuan and, and, you know, the Hunanese will say, oh, well, we eat spicy, but we also want to taste the flavor. So we don't put as many in as Sichuan because they're just not subtle enough. And so there's jibes back and forth. But, you know, the Sichuanese would also, you know, in defense of their own food would say, no, 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 we're, we're, often looking for flavor. It's not just about heat. Have you been able to discover when and where chili peppers arrived in China? Roughly. Um, And when I started the project, I was really hoping I could pin it down much more precisely and then sort of track the chili moving up river valleys. But the sources just aren't that detailed. So earliest written source for China is 1591. 
Um, and that almost certainly means that Chile was there up to 10, maybe even more years before that. My guess is 1570s is when it arrived. And how's it arriving? Is it, is it one arrival? Is it one, one person bringing chili pepper to China? It's probably multiple arrivals. It's arriving from Southeast Asia, and it's probably Chinese merchant ships, predominantly Fujianese, who are bringing it back. There's no evidence that they're bringing it back as a trade commodity. So I think they're probably bringing it back as a flavoring in their own food and then spreading it because they like it. Chile gets to Southeast Asia from two directions. The Portuguese bring the Chile into the Indian Ocean Basin. And again, it's not, there's no evidence that they're trading it. And it's, they're probably members of the crews on ships that are eating it and they're just bringing it along and then they're spreading it when they get to various ports. And then the other direction, the Spanish, once they start sailing across the Pacific from, from Mexico, they're going predominantly to the Philippines and then again, crew members are bringing it in there for the for flavoring of their own food. It's not a trade commodity. And the, the main reason it's never a trade commodity in that time period is because it'll grow in temperate climates. And so it's a big difference between the chili pepper and the traditional spice trade spices, nutmeg, black pepper, uh, cloves. They all require a tropical climate to grow. And so they have to be continually imported into places like China and Europe. And so that's how you get that trade in those spices. But if all you need is a few seeds and you can grow them your own, that trade doesn't develop. And that's the case with the chili pepper. And is, is that part of why they become so widely adopted that people can just grow them? I, I really think so. Best things that I can find in terms of sources for China, the early use as a uh, flavoring was predominantly initially as a substitute for other things, typically things that were more expensive, like salt or black pepper. And so I really think it's, it really takes off. Yeah, because it becomes available. You can just grow it in your own garden, your kitchen garden, and you don't have to pay anybody for it. You, you mentioned um, in the book, you mention also uh, part of this substitution is how you track it down through the various names. So Taiwan, it's a substitute for ginger. And, and then you've got a route coming through Korea as well. So that goes into northern China? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I think there are three initial places of introduction. And again, it's probably not just one person bringing a whole bag of seeds and everybody takes off with it. It's going to be a little more gradual than that. So up in the north from Korea into uh, China, the initial name there is Qin Jiao, and that means pepper from Qin. Uh, and that's a inland region or state, roughly modern day Shanxi. And 
That is actually also a name for the native Sichuan pepper or flower pepper, which is in a completely different family from either black pepper or uh, chili pepper. That was confusing for me in terms of research because it was sometimes hard to tell if they were referring to the Sichuan pepper or the chili pepper. And I think the reason they chose that name, one that already existed, was because in that, that region near Korea, they typically used a different name for that pepper, for the Sichuan pepper. They called it flower pepper. Mm -hmm. And so they took an existing name for something with a strong flavor to label this new product. I think it also shows that they weren't as aware that it was a you know from overseas um so they're not putting a name like foreign pepper which is one of the other names that when it arrives in the central coast which is the earliest place it arrives it's called foreign pepper and that's acknowledging the fact that it's coming from overseas but that use of that term pepper that character originally means that native Sichuan pepper. So both that chin pepper name and the foreign pepper name both imply that you can use it in ways similar to that native pepper. And in that third place where, where it's introduced, where, where again, uh, the locals come up with their own name for it is basically foreign ginger and the implication there is they're using it in ways similar that they're using ginger. So as a particular flavoring in, in dishes. What, one of the things that comes across quite clearly is that um, China has this, this civil service where people are reporting on what's going on and you have the elite running the country and the elite doesn't think much of chili peppers or... or if it does, it sort of says things like, well, they cannot be put in the mouth. So you don't get writing about it. Was that because the taste was sort of considered a bit in your face for a learned member of the elite scholastic classes? Or, or was it because because it was popular with, with the common people? Was there a kind of snobbishness about it? I think there almost certainly is. Um, and And some of it comes through in the sources. And, you know, one of my favorite sources is the, the guys talking about how the local people, so the farmers, are planting a couple of different varieties of this food. And then he's like, well, and then if you eat it, it makes you sweat and cry and tear up. And therefore, the people who eat it are very few, which, again, you know, that's that gap between the elite who are writing about it and the local lower class people who are eating it you know you, you're not going to be growing two different varieties of chili peppers if you're not eating them uh at that point i do think there's there's an element of snobbishness there's an element of the cuisine that really dominated the elite particularly in the 18th century was one that emphasized subtle flavoring and obviously the chili pepper is not going to fit into that group and so there'd be an element of, well, we're, we're sophisticated. We can eat something with subtle flavors. We'll leave this really strong flavor to the lower class people who don't really understand cuisine. But there's also a, a traditions of uh, 
meditation and making sure your mind is clear. And those come out of Confucianism as well as Buddhism and, and also Taoism. All of them have that trend. And one of the things they tend to avoid either all the time as in Buddhism or at key points when they're when they're needing to have a clear mind is to avoid strong flavors. And so that again is a tradition that's predominantly, you know, it's amongst religious follower, you know, uh, devotees, and then also amongst the elite who were in, instilled with that Confucian education. And is that still a factor today? I mean, do the people who consider themselves elite in China today, do, do they look down on chilies? It depends. So, you know, if we go back to Mao Zedong, who was the paramount leader for quite some time, he's from Hunan and an avid, avid chili consumer. And so for him, it was sort of the inverse of if you can't stand to eat chilies, then then you're sort of a wimp. Yeah, but he's, um, a, he's also a, a, a representative of the proletariat. I mean, he's... Absolutely. He's identifying with them. Yeah. He is absolutely identifying with them. And so when he's critiquing people who can't eat it, sometimes it's just because they're from the north and they don't eat spicy. But other times he's he's critiquing a class background. Absolutely. Um, So if you look in contemporary China, there's certainly some people who would tend to avoid eating chilies. And it would be for similar reasons in terms of wanting to to be able to taste the subtlety of flavoring and seeing that as sort of a, a, a better type of cuisine. But there's also ways in which particularly Sichuan cuisine has become quite fashionable all across China. And you see Chongqing, hot pot, all everywhere. And so... There's definitely a broadening of the palate. And that's, I think, happened really very, very late 20th century and predominantly in the 21st century. Um, And you you get, so I have Chinese friends who tell me, you know, that they'll eat much, much spicier food than their parents will. And that, Brian told me, is quite a recent shift. It reflects changing access to restaurants, as well as huge internal tourism in China. So people are being exposed to Sichuan and Hunan cooking and looking for it back home. But there's another side to the chili in China, where the link between food and medicine is still much closer than it is for people in the West. So I wanted to know how quickly chili peppers found their way into Chinese medicine. Pretty quickly, they start observing the medical impacts and results. And the Chinese don't really distinguish between food and medicine. Anything that's taken into the body is going to impact health and therefore has to be taken into account in terms of treatment. And absolutely, the chili pepper, I think one of the reasons it really takes off in China is because very early on it is integrated into traditional Chinese medical systems. And they're able to understand how it will work in relationship or in comparison to other similarly pungent or spicy flavored 
uh, plants. They initially put it into and understand how it will work based on its flavor. And then subsequently, they also observe other, other effects that it has on health. And you get a lot of listing of things that are outside of that sort of realm of theory and is more just observation from practice. What are the kinds of properties that they're medicinal properties that they're ascribing to chilies? Because, you know, you, you hear stuff about chilies are antibiotics and chilies preserve meat and what have you. I'm, I'm not sure what the veracity of those is, but are the Chinese thinking about it in those terms? Yeah, so the initial earliest sources that are talking about you know health impacts, some of the things they really emphasize are it aids in digestion, it stimulates the appetite. And if you look at modern sort of biomedicine studies of the chili pepper, one of the things that capsaicin, which is the spicy element in, in chilies, one of the things it does is to uh, increase salivation. Saliva and chewing is the first part of the digestive process. Once the chilies are in the stomach, it also activates, uh, stimulates gastric juices. So that also helps in aiding digestion. So there seems to be a, a logic that, that crosses over between those, that sort of modern understanding of how the body works and that traditional uh, system. Sort of antimicrobial or antiseptic value of chilies was also recognized pretty early on. And so, for example, I have a whole series of gazetteers. These are local histories from Fujian. So that's the southeast coastal area where they eat a lot of seafood. And that whole series talks about the chili pepper being a treatment for fish poisoning. So some sort of microbe that's coming into their system from eating fish. And that again, if you, there's modern studies where they, you know, put capsaicin in a Petri dish and add various uh, bacteria and it kills lots of them. Um, so there's absolutely evidence that, that, that those things are true. And then, you know, you also get some other treatments that maybe I wouldn't want to try. Um, so <laughs> there's supposed to be a treatment of chili peppers can be used for snake bites. The implication there is it's not doing anything to the venom. It, it's instead acting as a analgesic so it can help to dull the pain. It also can act as an anti-inflammatory. So you can put it, chew it into a poultice and stick it on the, on the snake bite to reduce swelling and pain. And then, you know, there's other ones. There's a, a really important aspect of the chili pepper that carries over all the way to the present is that it, uh, in, in the traditional Chinese medicine, it's if you live in a really damp, humid climate, which includes much of the southern interior, so places where they really love chili peppers like Sichuan and Hunan. It's super hot and humid in the summer, but it's also damp in the winter. In the traditional medicine system, 
that's going to create excess fluid or uh, in the body and therefore you need to be eating something that's going to help you expel that excess moisture a really obvious example of how that's working is when the chili peppers make you sweat that scene is really really important for people living in those areas um and Obviously, they were eating other pungent spices, spicy, spicy things in the past that did that. But they determined that chili pepper was much, much more effective at it than any of the things they'd been eating before. If we look at contemporary China, the use of the chili pepper as medicine is not that common in the sense of if you go to a traditional medical doctor and they give you a prescription it's almost certainly not going to have chilies and part of that is just the way modern traditional medicine has adapted over time they see something like that as too potent and it's going to overwhelm the other ingredients in the formula um we we talked briefly about about um chairman mao and and his love for chilies and his belief of course that Unless you could eat chilies, you couldn't fight either. Um, that is, you mm -hmm, know, if you mm -hmm. didn't, if you weren't a chili lover, you weren't going to be a good revolutionary. But I was surprised to read in your book, surprised by my own ignorance, really, that that the gendering of chilies—it's it's much more. The chilies are much more associated with women. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's an aspect of manliness in being able to eat chilies, but certain kinds of women express the characteristics of chili peppers. T tell me a bit about that. Sure. There's this term, la meizu, which means spicy girls or spicy young women. And it's a term often associated with women from Hunan. And it's, it's, it's sort of using, as, as you mentioned, it's using metaphors of the spiciness of chili to describe the women. Um, so they're seen as feisty and independent and assertive. They'll go out on their own. There's implications that, you know, the men need to respect that feistiness. Obviously, a, a strong stereotypes uh, <laughs> uh, going into that, but it's, it is a really interesting one. And it's one that's changed over time. It, the, some of the earlier representations of it in literature, there's always a, a fairly strong negative aspect to it and that the women are, are crossing boundaries too far and there's going to be some repercussions. But if you look at the modern versions of them, 20th and 21st century, they're overall very very positive and it's shed that negative baggage and they're definitely seen as assertive and independent in a very positive way i mean you talk about older and modern but but how back does this does, does this idea go back there's an opera from the 1590s where there's a very very brief mention of of chili peppers and it's associated with this uh, strong female character. She basically is, is so assertive, she's able to come back from the dead to be with her lover. A much more developed character 
is in the really famous 18th century novel, Dream of the Red Chamber, Hong Lo Meng. Um, in that novel, there's a very strong female character who's in charge of the finances of the main family's very, very large extended household. And her feistiness is the reason she's chosen for that position because they need someone who's willing to, you know, tighten those purse strings because they're, they're starting to have some financial difficulties. But that's one where ultimately sort of Confucian standards come in at the end of the novel and she's seen as having transgressed too many boundaries and is that character is punished. And so that's where we have it starting sort of as soon as the Chile's entered China, but not really getting more fully developed in the 18th century and then getting a more positive connotations by the 20th century. And so today you would say that far from being punished, spicy girls are actually desirable? Yeah, there's absolutely a, a bit of, uh, you know, f if the audience is a male audience, there's definitely a bit of fetishism in there, uh, you know, which obviously isn't always positive. <laughs> but there is that, uh, an element of that. But there's this really fun, popular song that's actually called La Maids of the Spicy Women. And in that one, it's a much more occasional line that's that's implied for the male audience um but there's also a lot of it i see is is for a female audience and wanting to be able to also assert that independence and it's actually a really popular song one of the things in china you notice if you go to any public park there's lots of retired people performing in a variety of ways and they're often uh, gendered, so you'll see groups of older women performing together. And uh, one of the songs that a lot of them really like to sing and dance to is that uh, La Maids of that spicy, spicy girl song. <laughs> I, I do find it interesting that chilies, partly because they will grow in temperate climates, I'm sure, but but they seem to be the most widely adopted flavoring globally. I mean, but it's it's something you find almost everywhere. And I wonder whether you, in, as a result of your research, I wonder whether you have any ideas on whether the Chinese adoption or embrace of chilies is in any way different from the embrace of chili peppers in, in other cultures where they, where they came in relatively late? I mean, I think all, every, every place that adopts something new is also always adapting it. And so it always gets adapted to fit in with the previous, you know, prior existing cuisine. And so in that sense, the Chinese are using it differently than the Mexicans or the Hungarians. But also, I mean, you can really see that just in terms of regional differences in China. Even though they don't like spicy food and they're often teased by others about not liking spicy food, the, the residents of 
uh, Guangdong or Canton, the Cantonese cuisine, is really not very spicy, but they actually use a fair amount of chili peppers in some of their sauces and some of their dishes. They're just choosing to use them either milder varieties or just not using as much of them. And so since you can see that regional difference across China, it's not surprising that you'd see differences in terms of the use of them uh, across broader regions, across different cultures, different countries. Professor Brian Dot. His book, The Chili Pepper in China, A Cultural Biography, is published by Columbia University Press. I'll put a link in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. That's also where you'll be able to find a transcript of the episode and where you can leave a comment or a question. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at eatpodcast and on Instagram at eatthispodcast. But the mothership is my home on the web, eatthispodcast.com. As I said at the outset, I've got loads of interesting topics lined up. If you don't want to miss anything, be sure you're a subscriber. A quick thank you to everyone who supports my work through Patreon or directly by signing up at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. Also, as this is the first of a new season, that means it's been ages since I asked you to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and maybe even to suggest to a friend that they take a listen. It all helps to spread the word. So, thanks. That'll do for now. So from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye, and thanks for listening.